Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Thank you, James, for presenting that to us and helping us see some possibility here of what we can do as a church. Now, I'm super excited about this missions trip because I know it's been a number of years since River of Life has had one aimed for adults to be able to go. And uh, so it's exciting to see the missions committee put this together and, and get us in a place where we can do it. So be praying and don't let finances stop you. That actually might be the very crux that God wants to show you himself. As, as he does that. I know uh, when the students went to Taiwan and they were looking at a $2,700 cost to get there, God actually showed up in big ways to help them. They were done by February raising funds for that and, and uh, working towards that. And uh, that was actually a big part of how God worked in that trip and, and is the process of by faith stepping out and doing something like that. Well, I want to mention a couple of things, too, and uh, point these out to you. First of all, if you have a bulletin in front of you, make sure you're reading that, keeping up with all the events and activities of River of Life. Information you need to know is usually found in there. Uh, Something that's not in there that I want to let you know about as an opportunity for us to respond to and do something with. At River of Life, we are a church that will go to great lengths to reach the next generation. Great lengths throwing resources, throwing ourselves behind it, whatever it takes to reach the next generation, whether that's kids, whether that's teenagers, or whether that's young adults. And in two weeks, I can't wait to uh, be able to share with you uh, some information about what we're going to do with young adults coming up this fall and uh, some ways we're going to expand into some ministry there. But uh, if you're older, like my age on up, I just want to say something to you about thinking about this. We leave behind a legacy. We leave behind, hopefully, a church that is healthy as we invest in the next generation. And it's important that we're always pouring into who is behind us for the sake of being able to uh, see the church continue forward, continue to see Christ reaching those people uh, that are behind us. And so we go through a lot of work to try to do that. And I hope that you throw yourself into that and uh, care about that. Um, One of the things that we're going to do as a church, and God's enabled us to be able to do over these next couple of weeks before the school year starts, is a little bit of a facelift in the back where the kids have their kids' ministry. And I'm excited about this team that has helped put this together. It's going to be really inviting for kids and exciting for kids to come in there. It's just a small piece of a bigger picture. It says you matter. Obviously, the color on the wall doesn't save kids, but it does say we want you here. And it does say we want you to be a part of things here and that you matter to us. And so part of what we're going to be able to do is replace some flooring, replace some carpet uh, that's back there, do new paint and a new design down the hallway. It's going to look like a kid's area. And we tore out a wall so that we can have uh, middle school and high school meeting at the same time on Wednesday nights. And uh, so we're making changes back there. But we really need your help. And I'm going to emphasize this. We need your help because first service was weak, guys. (laughs) I went back and looked at the signups, and it was pitiful. In the next two weeks, we have some work to get done because we want to get this done before the school year starts. We're in the process of working towards hiring a new uh, director of children's ministry too, but this is a little piece of it. 
We need some painters who are skilled with painting. I don't want your toddler showing up, but we need some adults. And men, sometimes I hear you say, I can't be back there with kids. I just don't like working with kids. It's not my thing. Here's your thing, all right? You can do this. We need painters. We need some people to help tear up the flooring. We need somebody to work with a guy who's going to lay the flooring. And we need some volunteers uh, to help with putting up some uh, peel and stick uh, wallpaper that goes on the wall in the hallway there. So we need a group of people, a bunch of people to jump in. The more we have, the easier it goes. And after the service, if you go out to the information counter, there's sign-up sheets out there. It's all on the weekends. It's easy for us to squeeze this in and pour some hours into it. If we all got behind it, we could slam dunk this and, and have it ready to go for the kids in the, uh, when school starts here. So let's uh, sign up for that right after today's service. Not to twist your arm too hard, but remember, first service, well, they're going to get a lecture next week. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Father, we come in here uh, remembering that when your people gather, this is something far beyond any type of gathering that happens anywhere else in the world. There's something spiritual and dynamic that happens when your spirit has the opportunity to speak through your word, through the praises of your people gathered together. And so, God, we want to humble ourselves right now before your word and say it is an authority over us because it comes from you and it's your word. It reflects you. It's a story of history that brings us to this day and tells us where we're going. It points us to Jesus, and in that we find our hope and our life and salvation. So as we look at it today, will you speak to us out of it and, and help us to do that with anticipation of what you might say to us individually. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 2 is where we'll be today, and this psalm continues us in our series in the Psalms where we've been looking at a variety of different types of psalms. Uh, As we've entered into them, many of our psalms have been what you might describe as a walk through the roses. It's been fun, it's been nice, it's been uplifting and joy-filled. And the psalm we come to today is a little different tone, and I need you to know this. I need you to be forewarned about it. It's a heavy one. It's a dense one, if you want to put a word to it. It's, if we've been walking through the roses, now we're going to walk through with a machete a little bit here. It's a tough one, and some people will struggle as you read this. I'm sure that some will come out with, wow, this is the strength and the might of God. But this psalm is so important for us to see because it helps us see and get a picture, a theological understanding for the events that happen in our life based on our world and then also in our individual lives and in our community and in the spheres that we live. It helps us not just to see the world, it actually helps us to see ourselves because when we look at the word of God, It's a mirror into our own hearts. So we would be amiss if we read this and just said, oh, that's great for some people. It's actually a mirror for ourselves to understand who we are. And that there's a need for someone greater than ourselves to bring salvation. It points us to a coming king who will reign with justice and with power. So let's look at Psalm 2 in that light, and that understanding. I want you to look for two things as I read through it this first time here. One is the application to David. What was it specifically David was dealing with and the application to that? And secondly, the application to the king who is to come. Read it in light of Jesus as well. So let's look through this passage. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? 
and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision or mockery. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's the word of God and we believe it as that. This past week, the Lord blessed me with a conversation with a gentleman I think he brought to this church on purpose, literally sitting on the doorstep, a homeless man sitting on the doorstep one morning this past week. And I sat down and had a great conversation with him as we talked about life and the world and who he was and where he came from and was able to pray with him and and just enjoy his fellowship. He was a brilliant man. A brilliant man, homeless by choice, but he told me some things about the way he sees the world. He said, the world has gone mad. It's crazy out there. He talked about people with a vendetta and living on the streets, how much he sees people out trying to gain power, even on the streets. Who's going to be the kingpin in Whitman Park this week? And he looked around at his world, and I agree with him as I see this. People trying to kill each other. It's almost like the world is out of control. And I see the same. The historian and moralist who was otherwise known simply as Lord Acton said in a letter back in 1887, a phrase that you probably know, a quote you probably know, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, he said. It's been played out in history many times in observations similar to that. Does a leader have to be corrupt? No. But often power does corrupt. It was illustrated in that study that you've probably heard of, uh, the Sanford Prison Experiment, done back in 1971, where they took a group of, of teenagers and they wanted to do a little psychological experiment on them. So they set up an environment that was kind of like a prison, and they made some of them uh, the wardens and, and, and those who were prison guards, and they made some the prisoners. And after only a few days, some of the prisoners began to break down. And the prison guards, over time, with the power that they had, began to abuse the prisoners. It was just an experiment. And within a few days into it, they ended up having to cut the experiment short because of the way that some of the wards were abusing, uh, sorry, the, the wardens were abusing the prisoners. Now, the funny thing is, we see this happen in real life oftentimes, right? And David saw it happening in his world. And in David's view, this world had gone mad. And as I look at what's happened in our world, we can relate. 
this homeless man who I got to talk to this past week, we talked about, so what is the solution in the world? So how do we handle this? And David understood that there's a problem with people. He saw it as a problem of we're not at peace. And the, ma- the means to that is to look inward for enlightenment. And if we would all do that, we could find peace in the world. I agreed with him on the sense that the problem with humanity is a problem internally in each of us. It's a problem of sin, a problem of, of the desire to, to rule and to reign and to be supreme for power, I guess you could say. But the solution is not internal. The Bible tells a story about a solution that's external, a need for a God. That story relates to Psalm 2, and it, we have to tie it back to the beginning of creation and the issue of the fall. God created humanity in the beginning of Genesis uh, with a perfect relationship. He created man in the image of God, not as God, but in the image of God. And Adam and Eve lived in a perfect relationship with God, perfect fellowship, perfect communion that you and I don't know. We, as followers of Jesus, know a taste of it, but absolutely no barrier between, between them and God because sin did not exist. They were given just a few simple commands, be fruitful and multiply, inhabit the earth and subdue it. And God gave them dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. It's not as if God stopped ruling, but he gave them some delegated authority. He's given this to us to to take care of creation and to rule the world. And there were only a few things they were not to do. And one of those things was this, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It must have been a bit of a tempting tree, a question mark in their head of why can't we eat of that tree? Because Eve was at least close enough to it where a serpent who was near it, who was Satan himself, able to come speak to her, challenged the goodness of God. And he begins to challenge the goodness of God by wondering, well, why would God tell you no about this? Why couldn't you experience good and evil? And he questioned God's motives. And he said this to them, if you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve fell into sin out of a desire to be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that not the temptation that we actually all feel in the fall? We call it pride, but it's this desire to cast off all restraint or a God over us or anything over us in order to be free from what we think we need to be free from. That's what entered at the fall. That is the same problem that plagues us today. It paralyzes us today still. This attempt to cast off authority and restraint in any figure that might be over us and essentially make ourselves God, and it relates to Psalm 2. And so when we come to this psalm, we have to look at it on two levels with that in mind. One level is exactly how David wrote it. On the level of the sense of the kings of nations, the world scene. And as he looks at those nations, he says the nations rage like a surging sea. That water just tumultuous and moving and constantly in conflict. God has a plan in the middle of it, but it's the pride of of rulers, of people in authority, of people with power 
that has caused this problem. And he's baffled by it when he understands God. The other level that we have to look at it is a different level because scripture is always a window. Even when we're looking at stuff like that, it's a window into our own hearts. We would be amiss, we would be mistaken if we walked away and we said, yep, kings need to change. Presidents need to change. Rulers of nations need to change. We have the same heart as them. And God has delegated authority to us in realms that may not be nations, but we have delegated authority in areas of employment and and as bosses over things and, and running organizations and ministry in the church and and homes where husbands and wives and children relate to one another it's the same corruption of pride of the heart that destroys those places too and so as we look at this passage let's let it shine a light into our own life and into our own heart so that we grapple at it on it at the same level as David intended to, to be for the kings of nations. Is there any hope? You bet there is. And as we walk through this, we're going to find some hope of how this will help us. So we're going to walk through this psalm. And then I'm going to give us three critical principles that we can pull out of this psalm that will help us in our own struggle with power and pride. So let's walk through this psalm and uh, discover what it has for us on the level of what it was saying to David. And so Gabe's going to put up on the screen as we go through just the section I'm talking about each time we move through these sections and as we go through it, okay? Verses 1 through 3 begin, and they start to set up this psalm in a way that helps us see uh, the turmoil of the nations. And again, the end of it ends with this blessing for those who trust the Lord. Now, I want to point out something before I read verses 1 through 3. This psalm is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's high up on the list of the number of times it's referenced back in the New Testament. One of the things that has blown away my mind as we've gone through this series about in the psalms is the number of times that the psalms reference is referenced in the New Testament and it is messianic. It points to Jesus. I'm blown away by it. And this psalm is another one where that happens. Okay, so Psalm, one, verses, psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These first three verses draw a picture of the nations. We understand the nations in David's day, a place where he, as ruler of Israel, has been anointed by God, commissioned by God, given authority in Israel. He's God's chosen one to rule Israel. He has a delegated power given to him. David knows the promise of God that in his kingdom, a promise that came in scripture, that his kingdom, his reign, would have no end to it. A promise of protection, a promise of blessing. And yet, there were rulers in his day of other nations that came against him and in essence were opposed to the Lord's plan when they came against him. They did not submit to the rule and the reign of the true God. And this psalm was probably written in the context of David processing one of those conflicts that repetitively happened while he was king of Israel. Maybe it was 2 Samuel chapter 10. One of the many stories that describes those kind of conflicts. In this one, 
the king of the Ammonites had, had passed away and his son now had come into power in the, in the, with, for the Ammonites. And so David wanted to send to the Ammonites uh, some, some people to send their condolences from Israel to be friendly to them. But when these Israelites came into the Ammonites' territory, they were captured. And the king of the Ammonites, this new king of the Ammonites, quickly declared them as spies. They've got to be spies. David's up to no good, can't trust Israel is what they, he, he concluded. And so he took these men and he did something embarrassing to them. They had big beards. And he cut half of their beards off to shame them. He cut their robes off about right here to shame them and sent them out. In order to embarrass the nation of Israel. Then he said, that is like an act of war to send spies into our our land. And he rallied together his troops as well as the Syrians to come up against Israel. And war ensued in Israel because of God's blessing, because of God's promise. In that war, Israel was victorious and, and shut them down. But that happened over and over. Stories like that happened over and over in David's reign. And he says, why do the nations rage? It's a lack of understanding by these other kings part about the true God. 1 Corinthians 2.8 was written after Christ, but it pertains to the same idea of a lack of understanding. None of the rulers of this age understands this, the gospel, or, or why they do what they do. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So it's a lack of understanding on their part. And David wants them to understand the one true God. Verse 3 is an interesting verse because in, in my translation, in the ESV, it says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. As I dug into that verse and tried to understand what does that mean? What are they trying to do? It's basically they were trying to get rid of all the influence of Israel. They don't want Yahweh, the one true God, to be over anybody else or to have any influence on anybody else. So the intended meaning is to basically cast off God. The New Living Translation takes a little liberty in the way it translates it, but it gets right to the heart of it. It says to free ourselves from slavery to God. Goodness, does that sound anything like today? To free ourselves from the slavery to God. Do you ever talk to somebody who says or listen to commentators who describe Christianity as this religion, this old religion, if we could just get ourselves free from these old truths, these old myths, these old things, and take God out of the picture. It's exactly what was happening then. There's really nothing new under the sun. People were declaring, and we declare today in our society, how we can be right. Just what's right for me is is what I want to live by. We make up our own truth. We decide our own truth. There's nothing wrong with me. If I just look inside, I'll find hope and truth. But that is not the picture painted in Scripture. We need something from outside of ourselves. And it's this effect that has broken down so many of the places that we see in our society, from marriages to institutions to the church at times. It's the pride of life to live outside of restraint of God. And so again, rather than just condemn those leaders of nations, how about ourselves? Same pride we wrestle with. So I ask you the question again, what have you been given delegated authority to lead or to care for in your life? Some employees, a business, a spouse, children. 
the psalm moves on in verses 4 through 6. And as it continues, we get to see David's, why he's so baffled at the actions of those around him, the pride that he sees emerge. So in verses 4 through 6, you can look at them. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and mockery. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, a reference to Christ. So David begins to talk about this. He views the world through this lens of understanding who God is. That these kings of nations live as if there is no God, that they are God, that they can do whatever they want, that they can try to oppose God, but it's foolish for them to do so. God is stronger and more powerful to the degree that God even laughs at them for it. How could you possibly, people, think that you can get away with it? How could you possibly think that, that you could behave like this? It's a delusional thinking. It's a thinking that actually, when I look at this and I see the words described about God's look at this, I tremble. Wrath. His, his ability to just come out in fury. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians one twenty. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of this world? Their arrogance is no laughing matter. Though, because the end that they'll come to. It's interesting that the nations are angry, but God's anger, it says in here, will grow greater than theirs and to the point of being able to bring destruction. We're uncomfortable with the wrath and the fury of God. Could God hold both love and grace and wrath and fury all within his same being? The Bible describes a God who who at the same time is extending grace and the opportunity to be forgiven and know know his love, can stand with, with wrath and fury, and those two things are not opposed within him. Neither of them are, the, the wrath and the fury is not sin, it's not a brokenness, it's his perfection that brings that out. And this passage causes me to tremble. One of the ways that I have been able to understand it is through some word pictures that have been shared. And, and perhaps this is where some of the foundation of even people who have come up with these pictures have found it on verses like this. And the understanding of, of the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The understanding of that. One of those pictures comes from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a book written by C.S. Lewis that has helped me understand this concept of what it would be like. In this, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about some various characters, animals and people, and they're interacting in this world, uh, that this imaginary world, but it's an illustration of God. And God in this book is a lion. And there's some people and there's some animals that are in it, so don't bug out on me as I describe this. One of those animals is a beaver that talks to the, one of the main characters named Lucy. A young girl who's coming to understand Aslan, this lion, who's the God figure in this book. And as she looks at Aslan and she's trying to understand him and trying to get her head around him like we might be, she wonders if he's even safe. He's a lion. And so she asks this beaver who understands about Aslan about this. And the beaver says to her something that is so easy to understand. 
Who said anything about safe? He said, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, if I look at a lion that's ferocious, that could rip me apart in, in seconds, if I'm standing face to face with him, he's terrifying. I, I would run in fear. If I'm standing beside him and he's on my side, I handle him and treat him with great respect, but I don't need to fear him. I tremble before him, I'm careful with him, and I understand his power, but his, fear, or his, his fierceness is not against me. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, if we're people who live under the fear of God, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says something that's very important to us. For God has not destined us to wrath, to his wrath. He won't pour it out on us, but rather to obtain, obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. My brother, Steve, you'll hear stories about him over the years, and he, is, he was always in trouble when we were growing up. I loved it because he took the wrath of mom. And he always had himself in a spot where he was noticed and we weren't. So Steve used to get spankings all the time growing up, and in essence, you could call it like the wrath of mom coming out on Steve. Well, our bedroom, the boys' bedroom, had two doors on it, one coming from the kitchen and one going out of our room into the hallway where the other bedrooms were. And so we would, my parents would often cut through our room to get back to the other part of the house. One day, Steve was sitting in his room playing with Legos or blocks or something. And my mom tells this story about how she came through with the spanking spoon and she came past him and he looked up and his eyes got really big and she walked past him. And as she's going out the door, she hears him go, that's not for me. Thank the Lord. You guys, as believers, we can say that wrath of God is not for me. Thank the Lord. It won't be for us, but it is something that causes me to live differently and to hold God with a respect and awe. You'll hear more stories about Steve to come. I wish we didn't live in an era where we recorded sermons because he, he could find out I'm doing this. All right, moving on, verse 7. This next chunk, 7 through 9. This next chunk of verses, allow God's anointed one for David to speak. And David says this, I tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth, your possession. This verse eight is one we often use with missions. I'll come back to that in just a second. Verse nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In these verses, David is holding on to the promise of God's covenant with him. A covenant that we talked about last week, but was given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. A promise of God's protection. God said to David, I will cut off all your enemies. In other words, Israel will be protected while you are king. And you will be a blessing. He promised to David that David's kingdom would would go on and on far beyond his death. He would establish his kingdom forever, God said to David. And so David held on to that. One day in a culmination of Jesus himself being the ultimate king that emerged in this. So that is the inheritance, this heritage that is to come behind him. Verses 10 through 12 open up a correction or a warning and some hope. They say this, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. God gives a warning to the rulers of these nations that are coming up against Israel and God's plan, who are opposed to Yahweh, to the true God. And in this warning, he explains to them this need. He opens up a door where they need to submit. They can submit. They can come to a place of understanding who God is. And there's a need for them to change in light of the power of God. He says to them, serve with fear and rejoice with trembling. To submit means basically I'm going to give up my right to try to rule or even it's, we may have a perceived right and it's not even true, but it's, it's to give up. I surrender. I let go of what I'm holding on to. And the call to these kings and the call to us is to surrender, to let go of control. But the last line offers so much hope of the grace of God. Because he calls them to take refuge in him. In the New Testament, that refuge is found in salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Call to come to him. And that's our passage. And it's one that calls to hope. But I told you this passage would be one that I want to look at for ourselves. And so the pattern in this psalm is man... God, and then God and man's relationship together. We're going to follow that same thing in three things I want to give you. The first one's about man. Second one's about God. The last one's about how God and man relate together. So let's look at this. I'm going to give you these three. The first one is this. Three critical observations about this passage to make sense of my own struggle with power and pride. First one, we have a tendency to make ourselves God. David looked at his world. He saw Leaders, he saw humanity, all these people who, what Genesis 1 describes, set themselves up to be like God, to stand without any rule or authority over them. And we live the exact same way so many times trying to be from, away from God in his rule, in his reign. It's in our fallen nature. David was a mixed picture. David at times was a man with power who handled it well. And sometimes just really blew it. Here's an example of a time when David tried to make himself God. It's a story you may know pretty well. The story of David and Bathsheba. A story that is described as, a, as David being king at the time. And David, with his power, looks upon a woman that he lusts after. And he, she's married. And he wants her to lie with her. And so he brings her in. He does. And after he realizes he's kind of messed things up because she's pregnant, now he goes and he, using his power, kills the husband. The absolute perfect example in David's life, or maybe terrible example of this, of how he used power for corruption, making himself in the place of God, stepping out from God's authority. But that same heart that's in David is in me and it's in you. And that's why every week as a church, we deal with these issues. We deal with marriages where a husband and wife are in conflict with each other, having to do with power and a struggle with who's going to be in control and throwing off restraint. Men who want to have power over their wives and wives who want to have control over their husbands. 
But it doesn't surprise me because it's actually in the curse. Genesis 3.16, when the curse was being described to Adam and Eve, says to the, to the wife, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It's not a compliment to either of them. And the, the husband who comes down with power and control and he uses his authority in a negative way and then the wife who comes on top of that and tries to, I'll show you, and then back the husband, I'll show you. And around and around it goes. We want to make ourselves God. I see it on a weekly basis, even among ourselves with, with kids who don't want to live under authority with parents. We see it with with employees who struggle with controlling bosses, or maybe you find yourself to be a controlling bosses, using your power and authority for negative, using people. And it gets played out in our lives all the time, and it's the battle and the part of the power struggle that happens in our world, and it's in us. But not every leader is a bad leader. The best leaders are ones who have experienced and tasted the grace of Jesus Christ and are in the process of being transformed to him. What is their secret? It's the understanding of this in a believer. God is the sovereign ruler of the world. What's sovereignty mean? It's simply the fact that God is sovereign over everything. He has all power, all wisdom, all authority to do anything he chooses in creation. God holds that right as the creator. God can do what he wills. He can command his creation to do anything he wants it to do. And he's good in that. And he has a plan that he will bring to fruition. So he, in the context, so God, in the context of nations, puts kings in authority and he chops them down. Daniel 2.2 He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Romans 13, 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All power over other people or over something created is given by God. It's it's. You've given, been given some authority by God. Even Adam and Eve, they were given dominion over nature to subdue it. The church, this isn't ours. Christ is the head of the church. Marriage, Christ is the head. Husbands, Christ is the head. Boss, as an extension, you are an extension of God's goodness to your employees. The way we handle authority and pride says so much about what we actually believe about God. God is the sovereign ruler. So what if I am with somebody who's out of control when it comes to power? What if somebody is over me and they're just a slave lord? They just use me and and it's a constant battle. God's call, I believe, to us is to continue to live under his authority in a biblical way, looking what scripture says. Not to run, to stay in that relationship, to continue to to be the means of grace to that person, even when they are sinning against you. So the third thing we find in this that really applies to our life, the final thing is Christ is king, and that changes everything about our lives. 
Christ is king. David, in his understanding of what is to come of his kingdom that will rule forever, it's like a foreshadowing that he puts out in this. In his limited understanding, the spirit speaking through him spoke these words. Do you know how much this psalm speaks of Christ? It's all over. Let me show you a little bit of a chart. Psalm 2-2. Rulers take counsel or they plot against the Lord and his anointed one. Jesus went to the cross after the leading priests and elders plotted how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him, right? In the same way that David was experiencing it. Psalm 2-6. The Lord declared that he has set Zion on, or set his king on Zion, his holy hill. This statement comes to fruition when Jesus is enthroned on God's holy hill, this hill that he created outside of Jerusalem and not on a throne that people were expecting. Psalm 2-7. Here David, the psalmist, uses a name that God only said about Jesus. You are my son. When Jesus emerged from the Jordan River at his baptism, a voice from heaven says, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And then again, the writer of Hebrews quotes it, referencing Jesus. Psalm 2.8, another spot. David is told he is to ask for the nations to be his heritage. We talk about this verse usually related to missions, but it's an amazing verse. An amazing verse that looks to the future. It actually looks to the book of Revelation, the end of times, where we get a picture into heaven. And in this picture in heaven, the nations are gathered it says in Revelation 7, 9 that there's a multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. This book or this chapter of Psalms drips with Jesus. It's all through it. It's looking forward to this king to come. And David, through the inspiration of the spirit, can see that. Can see something about Christ who is to come. There would be one who would come who would sit on the throne as the ruler of the world. And that man is Jesus. And he stands as the supreme ruler of the world. Revelation nineteen sixteen uses this phrase, King of kings and Lord of lords. A title that shows God's absolute power, ability to execute all dominion over all of his realm. And in the case of the Lord Jesus, it's the realm of creation. When Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it means in the end, all other rulers and even small people who set themselves up in your business or in your world will be conquered and abolished if they are not God-fearing and he alone will reign supreme as King and Lord of the earth. There is no power and no King and no Lord who can oppose him and win. And we sit in a place of choice in our life about living under the authority of god will we rebel with pride will we live in submission in surrender to god in the areas where he has delegated authority to us and if jesus is king it changes some things about how we live let me give you four quick lists through this Recognize all earthly power is entrusted to you from God. Therefore, I must handle it with care as a steward. You don't deserve power. God has entrusted it to you. 
Handle it as a steward. What's a steward? If I made you a steward of an estate, you carry out, you execute the wishes of the one whose estate it was. And handle it with care. Don't forget the words. Ask the verbs all through this. Ask, be wise, be warned, serve with fear, rejoice with trembling. That idea of submitting. Because not all leaders are corrupt. You don't have to be a corrupt leader if you live under the authority of Christ. Next thing is this. Do not fret when the world seems to be raging, like the sea that's tossed and turned. Church, can I say something that I think needs to be said? Christians do not need to fret about politics because they will always be surging and raging till the Lord returns. So have stability and confidence in the king to come. Our hope is not in politics. It's in the king to come. So look to him to be the stability there. Do not dismay when opposition emerges to ministry that you are called to do. If God has called you to do something like David was the anointed king, stick in it and do not be dismayed. Expect opposition because Satan is active. But stick in it. Don't be dismayed. And last but not least is make Christ king of your life. Come under his rule and his authority. His grace calls you to come find refuge in him. To sit under him and his kingship. To find salvation there. Jesus is the only place for salvation. From your sin, from your pride, from our struggles with power and pride, Jesus is the Savior. Ephesians 1 said, God raised him from the dead and placed him over all things, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is so good. He offers and extends forgiveness and grace. And he wants to make you a great leader with the power and authority he's given you in the realms of your sphere of influence. Heavenly Father, I pray as a church body that we would be good stewards of what you place in front of us. And perhaps you've called us individually for such a time as this. This generation, this place to lead cities, to lead uh, places of influence in, in businesses, to lead homes under the light of your kingship over us. God, anyone who is sensing the call today to receive salvation, I pray that right now they would trust you as Lord and Savior. Give their lives over to you. God, thank you for being a good king, one we trust and hold on to. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, will you stand for our benediction? Again, this week, it's from the words of this psalm, but modified for a benediction. A blessing, but it also has the warning encompassed in it. Now, therefore, church, be wise. Be warned about your authority. May you serve the Lord with fear, and may you rejoice with trembling. And may you kiss the Son, Jesus. And may you be blessed or happy or content as you take refuge in him. Amen. Thanks for being with us this morning. We'll see you back here next week.